The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. All right, tuning in, feeling your body. Feeling your jaw unclench. Take a few deep breaths, everybody listening. Take a few deep breaths, deep belly breaths. Pay attention to what your body is telling you. Listen to the feedback of your, of your astral body pressing against the physical form. Let all the stresses and consumeristic drives and desires that you have fade away into a feeling of oneness. Let the imminent feelings of doom and destruction and the all the nagging little thoughts of Palestinian children buried under piles of rubble fade away into your own bliss. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much longer I can, I can keep doing that. Um, hey guys, welcome to the show. Today we have a very interesting friend that I've been going back and forth with online who goes by the moniker Anarcho Spirituality. I don't actually know your name, your real, you know, mortal coils name that your parents gave you when you emerged from the other world into this one. And that's a funny thing that uh, most of my friends like you are strangers online. And I was told as a child by my Christian religious parents, don't talk to strangers. And uh, here we are. Most of my friends are strangers the stranger they are the better that's what i say so uh hmm. welcome let's uh we, we've been trying to go and go back and forth and and uh, schedule the show for quite a while now so i'm i'm really excited to get into this uh your page and um memes and content and ideas and insights and just general presence is has been really really um new and different to me it's really filled me with a lot of laughter and of a very specific kind and uh, I, I would just love for you to um, just start out with a simple, silly question of, you know, what is anarcho spirituality? What does that mean? How are uh, those two things related? That's a great place to start. So, um, well, the, the, the site or the, the page began as Awakened State 2020, and I was basically just a Buddhist shit poster. Um, but I found myself kind of increasingly getting drawn into social commentary. And, um, you know, anarcho-spirituality means a couple of different things for me. Um, I think that... Um, hold, hold on real quick. What's, sure. your, what's your name? What is your actual... What, what should sure, I call it's, you? It, it's David. Uh, Enlightened uh, so, one? What's that? <laughs> Call me the call me the awakened one. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's David, and um, I also go by Hanuman Das is my spiritual name. Hanuman Das, cool. Yeah, so this Sorry, is keep going. Servant of God in the form of Hanuman, uh, Hindu deity. Um, so, 
Yeah, so 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 I think that a correct understanding of spirituality aligns it very much with anarchism, and and I understand the world's various spiritual traditions as essentially providing blueprints to what some might call an anarchist utopia, um, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, um, kind of the logical endpoint of the Buddhist path, of the yogic path. Um, it, it, it points towards a society where people are. Um, responsible and respectful enough that they could live in harmony with one another without someone lording over them and telling them what to do. Um, so I, I, I see, you know, I see spirituality essentially as the path towards the perfection of the human experience from an inner perspective, from the removal of the defilements that lead to confusion and suffering um, from our psychology, from our emotional states. Um, and I understand anarchism as an effort to move in the direction for society of the removal of defilements that lead to suffering, um, that lead to conflict, turmoil, and, um, and, and, and everything that, that isn't consistent with the highest potentials for, for humankind. So I think, I think they, they point in very much the same kind of directions, just one coming from the inside, the other coming from the outside. Um, I also see them as fundamentally intertwined and supportive of one another. So, for example, um, if we actually wanted to see an anarchist society functioning effectively in the real world, um, people have to be at a certain point within themselves in order to um, to operate in that kind of environment successfully. Um, one could look out at the world and everything that isn't nature, everything that isn't absolutely natural, like the trees, the streams, the mountains, um, everything that's in some sense man-created is a reflection of the human mind. Everything that we see around us, right, is an idea that someone had that they brought into being in the world. So whether it's a, a building or a new kind of bike tire or a system of oppression or one of justice, uh, these are these these are thoughts that people had that they then brought into being in the world. So so everything kind of begins and ends with the human mind, and the human mind could be operating in a more or less defiled state. If the mind is full of greed and hatred and delusion, what we're going to be see is the manifestations of greed and hatred and delusion. If what someone is is thinking is. Yes, there's some um, natural and biological superiority that, that white people experience over people of color. Then what we're going to see is the slave trade. What we're going to see is tiered societies where one type of person is oppressing another type of person and using their viewpoints to justify that social inequality. So, you know, from, from this understanding, right, even if we, we to kind of to kind of paraphrase a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a, a Zen Vietnamese Buddhist monk, um, passed away recently. He, he said something to the effect of, I, I can't remember it exactly, but, you know, um, if you look deeply into the weapons that we carry, we will see our own minds reflected back in them, our own fears, our own hatred, right? And so if someone could wave their hand and magically transport all of the weapons to outer space, completely ridding the planet of weapons, sooner or later, we will make new ones because the seeds for their existence haven't been rooted out, right? The, the fear and the hatred in the human mind hasn't been destroyed. So, so if we really 
want to create that kind of a society, we have to be doing the work on ourselves, at least in tandem with the social work, so that we won't recreate systems of oppression through our own greed and hatred and fear. Yeah, I couldn't agree with with everything you just said more. I mean, that was a beautiful share. Um, I I knew your your silly little memes contained a, <laughs> uh, a, a a just a real powerful depth of wisdom. You know, wisdom is something you can't really fake. And I think so many people in the really the renaissance of uh, spirituality that is occurring on the internet that so many people have been able to be exposed to new cultures, especially white people who have no fucking culture, let's be real. And they're striving for some something older, something intrinsic, something that has been stacked upon itself for many, many generations, something that has substance, you know, even as they are seeking the, you know, erasure of substance into the, you know, integration of, of some greater oneness, which is really what they're seeking. But I think that so many people are looking for and find some pieces of this of this wisdom you know and they they wear it on themselves like clothing and literally i mean with with tattoos and jewels and you know ayahuasca bangles and you know uh you know posting the the iconography of of uh, shiva and hindu and, and you know and vishnu and krishna and you know and all of these uh all of these surface level representations of some kind of god striving some desire to connect with the spirit and i think that so many people fall so short of that and it's very clear to me after a few minutes of talking to them you hear the platitudes the same way a lot of political people with a heavy ideology like a marxist ideology you know you you can tell somebody just found marxism or anarchism or something because they're just kind of hitting the buzzwords you know and they're not really conveying a deeper sense of understanding where they can actually take that information, deconstruct it, and reapply it fluidly. And I think that for me, like, I'm not that um, literate in terms of ideology, political ideology. I haven't read, you know, a mountain of theory. I mostly uh, have ascertained my views of the world intuitively and through what I would consider a spiritual path, a path of you know, like the, the most profound anarchist book I've ever read was the Tao Te Ching, you know, hmm. which is all about uh, ending the resistance in yourself and in the world and not going against things and not being a controller and a dominator, even in your own mind, you know, and it says so many beautiful things like, you know, to become rich, do away with money, you know, to, you know, to to do, to do away with law, people will become peaceful. To do away with, you know, uh, labor, people will be industrious. You know, all of these taking away of all these uh, impositions, these externalities, these mandates that push people into some sort of form. You know, people uh, must find that within themselves. And I think that you spoke at the end of your beautiful tirade about the need to sort of synchronize the personal individual spiritual uh demolition of the structures of hierarchy and domination and the inner weapons that we use to hurt ourselves and to others that must uh, i think gandhi said spiritual purification precedes righteous action or something like that you know that we need to purify ourselves uh to put ourselves into collective action and i think i've seen so many people who have actually succeeded quite well in that 
personal purification. You know, I've met people in LA that have done ayahuasca like 30 times and they'll brag about that. And it's, it's still just all ego. You know, I've, I've seen people who are master meditators. You know, you have people like uh, Sam Harris, who's like a, you know, uh, probably a pretty advanced meditator who can, you know, detach himself to the nth degree and, you know, conceive of, or, you know, feel the contour of nothingness underneath everything and find the quantum nature of reality and all of its interconnection. But they're ultimately still a fascist because it's not connected to that program, that constructive program that Gandhi talked about as the sort of um, part two of the Satyagratha, which is the, the uh, systems change, the collective action. And so many people in the spiritual miasma today are all about personal transformation. They're all about personal change, personal growth, becoming better than yourself. And, and it becomes just another uh, reification of individualism, where they're just repeating the same individual dogma of the society that they were born into that tells them you're an, an isolated, separate individual, your uh, neoliberal paradigm of, you know, <laughs> you are an island unto yourself, you are responsible for your own existence. If you're poor, it's your fault. If, if you're rich, it's your fault. Manifest your own highest destiny, you know? And I, I just find that, that your uh, page is a beautiful antidote to that. You're very um, acerbic in your ability to deconstruct that and ridicule it, but also push toward that, that true wisdom that is contained in these ancient texts, these very scientific texts. I mean, especially like the Tibetan Buddhist uh, doctrines are a scientific, very meticulous, very um, detailed and trial and error oriented collective process of understanding consciousness. And, you know, consciousness to the Western mind is like, well, what the fuck is that? Whereas, you know, these, these ancient peoples have been studying from the primacy of direct experience and the use of psychedelics and, uh, altered states and handstands and headstands and, you know, fucking sitting on hot coals and just doing all this shit to get yourself out of this world and into that other world. So I'm kind of, I, I didn't really have a question in there, but um, <laughs> you can, I'm sure, find something to bounce off of there. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like uh, what you're pointing towards is the, the neoliberalization of spirituality, that you have this collision between, you know, ancient wisdom traditions and the neoliberal ethos and, and the capitalist mentality and all of the damage that's done to the human psyche. So, um, so, so yeah, the way that, you know, you, you, you mentioned before, um, you know, these, this kind of this new thirst for spirituality, but what a lot of people are finding is something that's already been corrupted. It's something that, um, that, you know, capitalism has already gotten its hooks into and began to twist and distort. And so, uh, you're, you're absolutely right in that, you know, a lot of people, particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from America, you know, so, so a lot of people that you see getting into spirituality in America, um, th they engage in it as a project of self-improvement, right? Kind of divorced from social concerns. Um, it, mindfulness has in some sense, sense become sort of a, a new prosperity gospel. You know, if only we could be more mindful, more present, m less reactive, we could be more efficient at work. We could make more money. We could, you know, box out the competition. And that, that's just so far from mindfulness as it was developed as, you know, the seventh fold of the Buddhist eightfold, eightfold path. Um, 
but 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 that's often the way that it's being presented because you have people dealing with the malaise of late stage capitalist decay and uh, and, and and alienation and this sense of disconnection and so um you know, th this is actually the antidote that a lot of companies are now giving their workers. And it's not because they make them feel good. It's because the the greatest risk that they're facing is actually burnout and fatigue and stress. Um, this is from, um, I'm starting to get into some of the material of um, the book McMindfulness, um, which is a really excellent um, critique of the modern mindfulness industry. But um, w within that book, you know, he, he, he talks about how, you know, uh, mindfulness has become divorced from the social moorings where one finds it in Buddhism. And it's just kind of this feel good spirituality that's really serves as a band aid, not as part of the path to ultimate liberation as Buddhism understood it. But really, it's like, you know, how can taking five deep cleansing breaths keep me at my work terminal for another hour? Um, like, is, is that something that we can do? And so companies then introduce these mindfulness programs. And that's, that's really the goal. It's, it's, um, it's to, to enlist the worker in the effort of um, avoiding their own burnout and their own stress induced explosion in the interest of capital. You know, but but if you look at these techniques within the context of the traditions that they come from, um, they're they're inextricable from social change. There's systems of ethics that are tied to these systems of inner growth, and the two have to develop together. As, as a matter of fact, um, you know, there's the Buddha's eightfold path, which is the the path of action um, from the Buddhist perspective, and so the eightfold path is typically broken down into three portions called the threefold training. This is the training in wisdom, the training in ethics, and uh, the training in mental cultivation. And so the Buddha said that you cannot separate these different aspects of the path; they are all instrumental. And so what that means is that you can't train mental discipline, you can't train in mindfulness, and expect to get somewhere without the training in ethics. With without concern for the way that you're relating with the people in your life, your environment, the environment, right? It's, a, it's all completely interrelated. And if we haven't cleaned up our relationship with those around us, there's only so far we could actually get in terms of personal development. The reason that that has been decoupled is because they don't actually care about personal development. They just care about providing a Band-Aid to you know, keep, keep the workers in their seats, in essence. I was just going to say a stupid joke. I was just thinking earlier before we were going on here about that the American Ohm is standing in line at McDonald's and saying, I'll have a... <laughs> yeah. 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 No, everything, everything you're saying is it's so profound. I mean, it, it, and it just, it's so, it rings so true to me, you know, because I see so much of this. It's just, it, because I really before politics spiritual change was my you know liberatory you know system it was it was first physically get the fuck out of an environment that constrains you and travel and go outside of your physical surroundings but then it was it was okay where do you keep how do you keep going you go inward you go into personal development you know through psychedelics and through meditation and through magic and through all these you know old older systems of you know, um, immersing yourself in a deeper states of consciousness to get closer to that direct experience, to become less reactive, because so much of what we're doing, and capitalism encourages this to the nth degree, is to be reactive. A reactive person is a great consumer because, you know, like uh, like grocery stores, 
use AI, you know, fucking craziest technology that's ever existed to study the way people move through a grocery store and design the, sh the store so it, it is maximally inefficient so that people bumble around and bounce into things and, and impulsively buy things more than they otherwise would. And so to be reactive is the perfect, I mean, if you're in a reactive state and you're just reacting against everything you said, someone says something to you, you just are a perfectly sheer surface, bounce it right back. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be really easy to manipulate politically. You're going to be really easy to manipulate into, you know, uh, tapping into your fear and your anger and your, your, all your low vibe surface level emotions that, uh, are volatile and allow you to be controlled. So, you know, I really believed for a long time that if we can stop being reactive personally and reconnect to that deeper sense of self, not the self that is me, but the self that is all life as, as you know, Krishna, the supreme manifestation of the Godhead represents all things, all beings in consciousness coming together, even the, the slight amount of consciousness, the feedback that the universe is getting through a rock, you know, the trees, the, you know, my, mitochondria, the mycelial networks, the oceans teeming with life, all of that is us. And I really, you know, felt that that was the most powerful axis, the most immediate axis that we could connect to and develop and get out of reactivity. But of course that, you know, it has to go further. It has to be connected to that, that, uh, platform of growth that those steps, you know, and, and, you know, we are trying ultimately to get to a higher state collectively because we are ultimately limited by what we can do as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of like, to highlight the distinction in terms of just, just looking at working on reactivity, for example. So, you know, the, the way that kind of contemporary Western mindfulness um, packages the mindful practice, kind of a, a core instruction you might hear is, you know, allow all of experience or to arise in awareness, non-judgmentally appearing it, you know, watching it to appear to arise and to pass away on its own. Um, within an attitude of non-judgmental awareness. So the, the goal then is to be kind of detached from your discernment and kind of allow the experience to pass through you, which may be good, maybe not. So maybe if you're in, an ex in, in a position where you're a victim of injustice, do you want to be allowing experience to arise and pass away um, non-judgmentally? I mean, maybe. So the way that these teachings are presented um, by the powers that be is yes, it ends there. And so they're training people. Um, there, there was a meme that I made recently that was, um, you know, me meditation is the opiate of the massacres, right? And, and so this was uh, a play on the use of mindfulness to treat PTSD in veterans. Um, and so the idea is like, you can do these abhorrent things, you can be completely, um, you know, numbed, through this mindfulness practice to kind of detach yourself from all of the revulsion and as part of one's core human nature to these things that the military is asked to do right so 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 um it is a form of self-pacification right it, it's it's you beginning to do your own inner monitoring for them right to make sure that you are pacified that having been said Right. Another really important role of spirituality that that I, I see is like um, the concept of the spiritual warrior. So I, I take this idea from Tibetan Buddhism and in Tibetan Buddhism, the spiritual warrior is someone who 
um, this is closely linked with the concept of the bodhisattva, if people are familiar, but uh, a, a spiritual warrior is someone who commits to do enough work on themselves that they can then be in a position to be of use to others. And then they spend the rest of their existence giving that back away, that which they've attained for themselves. So, so spirituality can also be our inner armor in the battle for justice, right? It, 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 provi it can provide, so, so that style of mindfulness practice, right, can give you the upper hand over your anger, over your rage, over your sense of injustice, right? Because it's not necessarily helpful to have that running the show. You know, in some activist circles, anger is kind of like fetishized in a way that's like, yeah, get angry, you know, but, but is that really the most helpful thing? Because oftentimes when, when we are driven by our reactive material, we're not thinking with our head, we're thinking with these emotions, and we might get ourselves into a little bit of trouble, right? It's the same idea that like, you know, within martial arts, right, no one acts in martial arts from a place of anger, because anger clouds the mind and distorts perception and gets in the way of, of clear seeing of what's needed in the moment. So even if you're in combat in martial arts, right, the goal is to have uh, to be centered and have a clear mind. The same can be said of activism, right? We, we don't necessarily want to be baited or triggered into doing dumb stuff. We want to kind of have some freedom from the control of our own emotions. So, so in that sense, right, distancing ourselves from our reactivity so we could be more surgical, so we could be more tactical in our approach driven by our intellect and not just by kind of raw emotion that can be particularly helpful but you know but people need these connections drawn for them the way that it's typically presented right stops where it stopped before just oh, let it arise and pass away but it's it's not about you know providing this kind of inner arm armoring so that we could better manage ourselves so that, so that we could be more effective in our work in the world yeah, I think there's just again so much that I I, I love what you're saying. I, I I was my my own mind was trying to finish these sentences even as you were saying them. Yeah, I think that especially in the activist world, we see so much anger and so much hatred and and so justifiably so. You know, where we have people that I can think of that spend all day every free moment they have cataloging the abuses in the world. You know, really like delving through the the pile of wreckage to find the Palestinian bodies and to um, like catalog sexual abuses of the mil U.S. military and just delving into these really horrible things that do in, in many ways help liberate us from the unknown and confusing sourceless misery that we feel because it gives a source to it, which I think is really important and really powerful. But we, we have to engage with the darkness of the world. I have a lot of spiritual friends that just will refuse to engage with anything that they would consider negative. And I think if you do that, you're living, you're living in a box, you know, and you're not going to have a full appreciation of reality. You're not going to be in an emergent flowing, you're not going to be, you're not going to be in the way, you know, in the Tao, which cannot, it's not compatible with any belief system. And I think that's the true power of the, of the Tao of, you know, being able to meditate and live mindfully and of anarchism as, as I practice it as a, a way, a thing you do, you know, to dismantle the coagulations of ideology and the structures of hierarchy and all of those sort of reconciliations and justifications that allow us to be the very thing we are against. And if we are consistently in a reactive mode and we are obsessed with the thing that we hate and 
there's a, an incredible Alan Watts talk where he's talking about Carl Jung. It's one of my favorite thing, pieces of media I've ever heard. And he talks about that if you are obsessed with evil to the point where you say, this must be destroyed and anything that I do is justifiable to destroy it. If you say that there is good and there is evil and they are not interconnected, they do not have a, a, a common source in behavior, in environment, in conditions, that if you say there is just darkness and malevolency and evil and destruction in the world and I must destroy it, then you become it. You become this and you justify it to yourself. And I, I think about Jordan Peterson all the time, you know, that that's, he's, he is in his incredible hypocrisy, a Jungian, you know, scholar who has misplaced the most important thing that Jung I understood, which is the shadow and that, that shadow work, that immersing yourself in the understanding that you could be Hitler, you could be Stalin, you could be any of these things. You could be, you know, George W. Bush. If you were, if you came up in the conditions that created that person and, you know, Marxists talk a lot about material conditions, but not a lot about the social conditions that arise to these behaviors in people. And I see so much hatred and so much anger that just makes us dumb and it makes us prone to reacting, to flipping from one thing, just going to the next, you know, going from one box of ideology that has filled our head with, you know, uh, TV dinner, <laughs> prepackaged beliefs and ways of thinking, and it, it will send us directly into another. And so we will just, we're not thinking, we're not living, we're not living in this right relationship with reality where we are emergent and flowing. Oh, just on the point of, 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 of pushing, pushing away the, the so-called low vibe stuff, right? Shielding oneself from the negativity. <laughs> um, if, if you're pushing away from anything, it has you trapped, right? From, from the perspective of Buddhism, we, we stay on the wheel of suffering because of our greed and our hatred, right? Our craving and our aversion. So if there's a part of your humanity that you can't face with openness and move through, it actually has you stuck because you're caught in aversion, aversion, right? So that, that's, that's a, a state of hatred and of pushing away, right? If, if, oh, I don't want anything to do with this, right? There, there has to be an openness there so, it can, so you could move through it and it can move through you. Otherwise, it's got you trapped. Yeah, I was gonna. I was just gonna go in a little bit into your personal life and your your story because I know you have a really interesting story, and I'm curious where this wisdom came from. But first, I want to I want to push that a little little further. That that um, the shadow, you know, and I just I'm thinking about pe specific people in general of the new age, the new new age, whatever you want to call it, spiritual sort of affliction, who have used spirituality not to make themselves better workers they have they're not in that sort of realm they're 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 more able to manifest this life of easy free flowing abundance and travel through the world and experience this freedom in many ways from capitalism from the grind from the structure of this system that shackles us to this condition that continually continually needs to be escaped from but i see so many of these people that are they mistake manifestation for privilege or the other way around. They mistake their privilege that allows them to be detached from all this suffering in the world, that allows them to travel the world and go to India and South America and do ayahuasca trips and sleep in a hammock and all these things and, and tell themselves, I'm one of the enlightened ones. I'm aware and everyone else is just a sheep. I mean, I have such anger for those people. I really, I, I struggle myself to not react against those people because I can understand and see myself in them. I can see there were periods of my life maybe where I was living in that way. I mean, I, and I, 
I was, I was seeking a deeper understanding and the experiences ultimately that I went through, not the choices that I made were what separated me from those people, you know? And I, I would just love to hear your sort of, cause I, I'm going to, I'm going to call out one person in particular and I won't say her name, but she is a Hindu and she uses that as a justification to really just not give a fuck about people and to live her life and, and in extreme privilege and freedom and, you know, joviality and bliss. And yet she travels through these places of extreme suffering, basically like living her party lifestyle in the third world where people are systematically deprived of the very basic nutrients they need to live. And they, they have been smashed from their cultures and kept from their freedom by the very systems that enriched the lifestyles and the wealth that enabled these people to live that lifestyle. And their view is, oh, I chose to incarnate into this form. They chose to incarnate into that form because they need to learn a lesson. You know, and that, that to me is such a profound perversion of a beautiful system that is, you know, as you were saying, it's not about, you know, your own personal, you know, detachment from it. It's about bringing you into a program of action. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to be a little careful here because I, I don't want to get in the business of you know, criticizing or critiquing other people's beliefs in and of themselves. You know, I think everyone is entitled to believe what they want to believe about God. And as a matter of fact, you know, there's as many views or understandings of God as there are believers with brains, right? So there's no view that's inherently superior to the other. But but what I do want to point to is that within any of these traditions, once again, the original teachings had a socially conscious aspect of it, you know, within the yogic traditions, you have the yama and niyamas, right? And so, so the yamas and niyamas are the ethical precepts that lay the foundation for the true inner yogic work. And these include things like, you know, restraint and surrender and non-acquisitiveness, right? So, so this is a life of simplicity, of asceticism, right? Jesus obviously was radically anti-wealth, right? In Buddhism, um, you know, the, the craving, the greed for material things is seen as one of the main drivers of suffering, right? So, so any of these traditional teachings within their historic context, right, were cutting in the direction away from material acquisitiveness, away from privilege. And, 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 and I think that if you're really doing your work, one of the hallmarks of making progress on the spiritual path is self-sufficiency in your, you know, in your own self, is, is not needing to build an ego to build an identity out of the stuff you have, right? Because that's, that's what's really going on is it's spiritual materialism and actual materialism, right? The, the ego loves acquisitiveness because um, it, it can assimilate these objects into its identity as a reflection of its own worthiness or of its own um, solidity or superiority, right? So, so, so these, these material conquests that people go on, you know, are really coming back to just the way that they can understand themselves to be, where their place in the world is, how they're thinking about themselves, right? And so, so it's just assimilated into the ego. And so, so you know, progress on the spiritual path can be marked by, um, you know, by one's ability to let go of all of those external forms of validation because there's such a vibrant sense of self-sufficiency and wholeness within oneself that those kinds of uh, worldly things sort of fall away. I also want to comment on um, the the notion of 
they chose this incarnation, so they're just learning a lesson, and I chose this one, so yada, yada. Um, that, that That's getting into the territory of what I think of as the religion, as the opiate of the masses types of teachings. The idea that... Um, spiritual so, so, bypassing. Spiritual bypassing, and, and the idea that, like, the world is the way that it is because God has ordained it to be so. Therefore, we don't need to do anything about it. And so through history, you see this rationalization provided certainly by the Roman Catholic Church a lot, especially in its marriage to the state, you know, would be convincing people, well, this is this is God's ordained structure, you know, so there's nothing to do about this. You also saw this, saw this in like, um, in Tibetan society prior to the Chinese invasion, you had kind of like feudal lords who would justify their oppression and exploitation of the peasantry with, well, it's your karma to be where you are. It's my karma to be where I am. So that's just the way that it is. And so, so the, these positions are entirely internally inconsistent because if you use that argument to justify the status quo, I could use that argument to justify the changing of the status quo, right? If it's God's ordained you know, if it's ordained by God to have a system of oppression and a revolution happens and throws that government out, then I could say it's ordained by God to have this revolutionary government or, or whatever the case may be. You, you know, it's it's picking and choosing. You see, like, you know, conservatives in America say, oh, yeah, you know, Bush or Trump is God's candidate. God elected Trump. Right. This is a sign that we're on the right path. And then four years later, Biden gets into office. Oh, no, this is the devil's candidate. Like you can't have it both ways. Either things are the way that they are all the time because God has ordained it to be that way or they're not at any point, And it's just what people happen to be doing. But but people use these kinds of these kinds of rationalizations to justify the status quo the, from at least talking about karma and like, say like the Buddhist perspective, um, that is just completely unacceptable. Um, it is unacceptable to say your suffering is something you deserve. And so that absolves me of any responsibility to try and help you. Compassion is the single most important virtue in Buddhism arguably in Christianity as well, right? God is arguably a God of compassion, if we understand the way that God is framed, you know, within Christianity. But, um, but yeah, it, it, if, if someone is suffering, right, that might be their karma, but it might also be their karma for us to help them end their suffering. That could be part of their karma too. Who are we to make that determination? The Buddha said that karma is one of the imponderable subjects, that you, it is not for humans to try and understand the intricate web of karma, which means that all there is to do is to act with compassion. Because if we allow our hearts to close down in the presence of the suffering of others, then that's our karma. Now we have to live with a closed down heart, right? And, and so in all instances, we should be working to keep our heart open to our fellow creatures, you know? And so, so it's actually self-defeating. Um, it's self-defeating to be using those kinds of, of arguments to you know, justify other people's suffering. It's, it's really unacceptable. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, I, don't, I don't want to call out anybody for their beliefs, but I think ultimately, like you were saying about, you know, uh, just God being whatever you want it to be in the moment, I think that it's not so much the beliefs that I criticize because I, I, I've read many of the same books and have come away with very different conclusions you know, to a lot of these people who will say, oh, well, the world is a dream, and so it doesn't really matter, and it's not substantial, and it lacks substance and form, and, you know, it's all ultimately emptiness, and, you know, there, there's no good, there's no bad, you know, it, you know, I, I have a very different view 
that we are here to learn a lesson on a cosmic scale through our existence. We are here to ultimately dissolve this sense of ourself as a separate entity. And I think the idea that like, oh, I'm going to reincarnate perpetually as me with the same personality. I just think that's so vain and egotistical to think that you, that your soul recycled across all time would retain the you-ness that is you because you grew up in your environment with your influences and your, you know, circumstances and the random, you know, or, or godly ordained, you know, collision of circumstances and material conditions and, you know, friends and relationships and all these things and car crashes you randomly witnessed and all these things that we see that th that become us that are us i just think that it's 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 ultimately a rationalization for the belief that is embedded at the deeper level which was in embedded at childhood you know which is to to we are raised in this culture and in this environment and this is i think the deepest the perhaps the deepest truth as it is relevant to our action, as it is relevant to loving our neighbor, is that we are all products of our environment, that we all of us could be our most greatest, our greatest friend or our greatest foe. We could be that person. If we went through the circumstances that they did, we would be that person. You can't say, if I was born in Trump's shoes and my father systematically forbid me from expressing any vulnerability and any emotion at all other than you know, pride and, and aggression and anger, I would choose to be different. That to me is the ultimate vanity and is the source of all craziness. And, and as to get back to that Jung talk, that if you live in a world of good and evil and free will and choice like this, and you say that the, the darkness in the world is, is, you know, is that way because it chose to be, and I wouldn't be that way, and there are just evil people in the world, you are living in an insane universe of which no true sense of no, or no true uh, rationale can be made. So ultimately, these people who I love, I love, I love everyone. I really, if I put my heart into it, there's no one that I can't find love for, even if I have to see through every layer of Jeffrey Bezos to see the essential soul, the spirit, or the potentiality that this is a human being that's capable of just about fucking anything. That that person could have been anything if they were born in those circumstances and exposed to those influences. And as a philosophy for technically reconstructing society, if we construct a society that reinforces these values, that meets all people's needs unequivocally, that is that has love embedded into the stitching and the fabric and the the brick and mortar of our of our social structure, we will see an ascendancy of people. <sighs> that was God giving me a sign telling me I'm wrong or I'm right, <laughs> depending on what I think. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just think that to, to wrap this little point up, you know, with some mercy and, and a, no judgment for anyone, I think we are born in this culture and it is so deeply embedded in us in ways we do not see. And so all the light work in the world is going to make you a better asshole. <laughs> Ultimately, <laughs> it's going to make you a better selfish prick. It's going to make you a better capitalist or it's going to make you better at ignoring the suffering of other people like you were taught to do from childhood without the shadow work that connects you to the realization that that person suffering on the sidewalk is you. That that person, that villain that, that is wreaking havoc on the world and burning oil and you know all these things, that's you. That could be you. And that for you to say that's an other that must be destroyed and I am not that and I am good 
It's the people that tell themselves they're good that are all every person that's doing bad thing is saying I'm doing it from a pl place of righteousness. Absolutely. Many of the worst people that have killed the most people in our lifetime said I'm Christian and I'm trying to save their soul. And that is just a very deep, deep, powerful, dis disturbing truth of humanity that we are all capable of rationalizing anything. So I, I got I got a question for you before we um, get get lost in, in more uh, <laughs> of the shades of nothingness. I, I, I would just love for you to tell you a little bit more of your story of how you came to know what you know, where how you attained this wisdom, because it, it, you didn't just fucking read a book and, and understand <laughs> this and be able to speak and, and empathize this way. Sure. Sure. So, um, so hold on, hold on one second. Actually, I gotta get some water. Sure. Right, let, let me do that too. Release your identification with yourself, your circumstances, your house, your checkbook. Quit your job. Feel the stress. Leave your body as you end your checking account. Default on your loans. Declare bankruptcy. Move into the woods. Fuck it. Climate change doesn't matter. We're all gonna die anyway. Nothing matters. Hey folks, if you're listening on an audio platform, please give us a review. It really helps us be seen and spread the word. And if you're watching on YouTube, Come on, what are you doing? Smash that like, hit the subscribe, hit the bell, and please just leave us a comment. Just comment four words or more. Just say whatever you're feeling, say whatever you're thinking. It really helps us transcend. Tuning back in. Oh. While I wait for my dear guest to get back from uh, his... Uh, water break. I mean, as if you really need water. I mean, why don't you just manifest it if you need it so much? I'm going to read a couple of his, uh, his memes here. This is a picture of Alex Jones, of course, our beloved Alex Jones. The mindfulness industrial complex deploys weaponized self-hypnosis to pacify the working class. Most modern new age why spirituality is appropriated and decontextualized Hinduism rebranded and sold as original ideas. Sex and gender are social constructs that utilize an artificial, an artifice of scientific objectivity to legitimize various forms of oppression. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Sell all your possessions and give to the poor. It is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a weird thing to say if socialism is evil. <laughs> Jesus Christ was not white. <laughs> You've just been anarcho-spirituality filled. You are now based. <laughs> I was spilling some airtime there. <laughs> All right, let's let's get let's get, get anarcho-spirituality pilled. Tell us tell us your story, my friend. Okay, so um, whew. yeah, it, it goes back to um childhood really um you know when, when i was uh I, I was always someone with a, a a mind for the big questions but um never really got any answers you know 
I was an atheist until about four years ago for that reason. You know, um, it, it's not that I didn't call out. It's not that I didn't try to pray, but I just didn't get anything back. Right. Not even a whisper, not even a slight shiver up the spine, nothing. I, I had nothing. And so I, I gave up seeking at a very young age and became a rather obnoxious atheist. Um, you know, when I was in grade school, probably, um, I got my hands on a copy of uh, Howard Zinn's People History of the World. And this was in like third or fourth grade. And so you can imagine what the Thanksgiving story was about at that age, right? And so now I have Howard Zinn's People History of the United States, right? With just the first, you know, 30 or 40 pages, just these statistics of like the abhorrent things that the colonizers did and everything. And so it, it, it put in, it threw into glaring contrast, right? The truth versus what school was about. And that was kind of the beginning of my descent. I, I completely disengaged. I was also very, you know, ADHD. I had um, ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. So I was a very, very rambunctious, shall we say, very difficult kind of kind of child. But so by the time I was 14, 15, I was getting into, you know, street punk and, um, you know, anarchist politics at that point. And but I, I was consumed with anger, though. And the anger basically burnt me out. You know, I, I was just outraged over the rampant injustice in the world, outraged at the passivity, outraged at the fact that, you know, most people want to have a barbecue on a Sunday and watch a football game and they don't care about the immensity of the suffering in the world. You know, and I was just I was just angry. And I, so I lashed out all kinds of different ways. And, and eventually the anger kind of just burned me all the way up. And I kind of let the politics fall by the wayside and just kind of went to kind of full-time criminality and stuff. I started gangbanging and um, selling drugs and guns and stuff and kind of hanging out on the block and everything. And, um, you know, and, and ended up uh, getting arrested for drug sales when I was 18, again, when I was 20. Um, and at, at that point, I was able to conclude that, you know, maybe this wasn't going to be a viable career option for me. Maybe I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. So, you know, maybe I'd be more likely to wind up, you know, in state prison then becoming Pablo Escobar or something. So, well, you know, maybe I'll try something else. And so I end up going to college and still, still rampantly addicted to drugs, still selling drugs. Um, and, uh, well, that, that was after the first arrest at, at 18. Then I could, got back into it, was arrested again, halfway through college. Um, <clears throat> you know, but, but at, at that point it kind of woke me up and I threw myself into school and ended up doing, extraordinarily well and graduating top 5% of my class at Rutgers you know, student government and all this stuff, um, end up getting, uh, a really good job offer at, um, a corporate law firm as a mergers and acquisitions paralegal when I graduated and kind of started moving up and progressively selling out more and more from there, you know? And I, so I did the whole corporate thing. I was working at hedge funds, uh, worked in, you know, for fortune, fortune 500 companies and stuff, um, doing well for myself as, you know, some, someone in the, in the machinery, you know, caught, caught in the system, you know? Um, but you know, but th there was never true happiness there. There was, I, I like to say that, um, I, I never felt like I had so little than when I've had the most. You know, because when you're caught in that mentality, when you're caught in that mode of kind of measuring your self-worth by the things that you have, um, there's no end to that, right? It, it's when, when I was busy, you know, making social measurements based on 
you know, people's material position. Um, all I could see was where I wasn't, you know, no matter how nice the things that I had were, um, there's always someone with more. And so there's this constant feeling of deficiency, this constant feeling of poverty, even kind of at the top of the game. And eventually, you know, I, I went to law school. I went to NYU. Um, I got a job at a top tier global corporate law firm in the um, leveraged finance department doing, you know, private equity buyouts and these kinds of things. I had a, a penthouse apartment in Midtown, two blocks outside of Times Square, you know, and um, so, so, so by, you know, by ordinary conventional measures, I had made it, you know, I made it, I did what there is to do in society that the, the things that they tell you to do to find happiness and, and it wasn't it. And it, it was burning me up, eating me alive. You know, I was in, in my mid twenties, definitely in the top 1% of earners, you know, in the country and never have felt so poor, you know, because that's how I was measuring myself. And there's always someone ahead of you, you know, and um, my, my career kind of unraveled, still rapidly addicted to drugs, but I, I, I messed up a deal. I was working in almost billion dollar deal for American Airlines and uh, I overslept the closing and missed it. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for me in that, in that line of work. And it, that sort of coincided with uh, a couple of other kind of personal crises. And I basically went into a tailspin and went back to the streets, back to selling drugs. And uh, at, th at this point, you know, I, I figured I had tried doing the real person thing. It, it, it didn't work. So now I'm just gonna kind of live this way until it kills me basically. So full-time drug dealer in the streets, um, was quite successful at it. I mean, at one point was uh, definitely one of the biggest meth dealers in New York City um, uh, until it landed me in jail. I started, you know, uh, got arrested twice um, and uh, for uh, two and a half kilos of meth, um, of which, you know, five, four of the five pounds disappeared in NYPD custody. An interesting little side note, <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I ended up having to do some state prison time. Um, but it was it was at this kind of end of my addiction um, when I'm, you know, in and out of the hospital on ventilators, on life support for, you know, a week at a time, just in the streets, you know, getting arrested and everything around a really, you know, dark crowd of people um, buying from the cartel, you know, um, that my spiritual awakening actually began. And so it, it really began in earnest on Rikers Island um, and uh, continued through uh, some time in state prison. And so, you know, whereas before, I was an atheist because I didn't have any experience that I finally got my experiences. So, you know, Moses and the burning bush variety, I'm God, motherfucker, get your life together. Right. And so, you know, that of course prompted a radical rethinking of my approach to life in light of the fact, Oh shit, that's real. I'm not going to actually getting away with any of this. What am I going to do now? And, um, so uh, my entire time in prison, you know, because these experiences began happening for me, um, I began, you know, reading different spiritual books to try and find traditions that could give me interpretations or ways of understanding what it was that I was experiencing. Um, and the the tradition that stuck with me the most initially was Buddhism. It's still my core practice, um, but but Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, it's called the um, the Path of the Elders. This is the most traditional form of Buddhism. Um, was what really resonated with me, and so my, my prison time essentially became. A, a monastic experience. I was meditating four to eight hours a day, every single day. Um, my, my locker was full of books. I was leading little Buddhist study groups, you know, with people 
uh, on my tier and in the yard and kind of became known as this person that was into this kind of stuff. And so, you know, thus began my teaching career in essence. And, um, you know, I remember a couple of weeks before I paroled, I was sitting with my mom in, in visitation and she said, so, so what are you going to do now? You're like this spiritual guy, like what's life going to look like for you on the outside? And I said to her, you know, I understand that I'm going to have to get some kind of like parole job, like work construction or, you know, washing dishes or whatever the case may be. Like, I, I accept that that's the position I'm in, that I'm in now. Um, but, but what I'd really love is to teach like Buddhism and meditation. But who would hire a former corporate lawyer, drug dealer out of prison to teach Buddhism and meditation? And, and in fact, it's as if the thing that I didn't feel worthy enough to ask for was exactly what I was being prepared for. And so, so now um, I, I do teach Buddhism and meditation and, and other forms of spirituality at a large uh, inpatient drug and alcohol rehab. Um, you know, I've, I've created my own programs and I run them full time. I started out there as an entry level employee, but um, occasionally I'd have to sit in and run groups for the patients on my units. And um, and I would talk about Buddhism and these kinds of stuff and word would spread around the facility and other patients would start asking their therapist, like, well, how come we're not learning about Buddhism? That sounds so cool. And th this went on for a while with like these groups, like being wildly popular, constantly being requested, where eventually um, my place just kind of created a position was like, here, just just do this full time, come up with a program that you could run in on our different units. And, um, and so now that's what I do. I meet with patients one-on-one um, -on -one and, and counsel them in this stuff and teach them how to use um, Buddhist teachings and yogic teachings and Taoist teachings and stuff. Um, my, my first program I developed was called Spiritual Warfare. And it's exactly the idea that I that I just presented before, the idea that um, we, we can do enough work on ourselves to get into a position where we're then of use to others. And so that's that's the the arc of the program is, is giving patients tools for working on themselves and, and, and dealing with their own struggles so that they could then make service their path, make service what their life is about. Um, and so, yeah, I'm also a, a yoga teacher now. I'm in a, a master's of theology and interfaith studies program. I'll be an ordained minister at the end of the year, um, writing my, my thesis now on the intersections of anarcho-communism and Buddhism. Um, and, I, and I'll be rolling into the doctoral program when that's done. So, you know, so this it's is a beautiful my life story, now. my friend. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And I, I, uh, I noticed this, that whenever I meet really people with extraordinary wisdom, and you do have extraordinary wisdom, you know, it, it always comes from some fucking superhero origin story ass or supervillain origin story, you know, like, <laughs> like the equivalent of being dredged in a, in a vat of acid of life, you know, of suffering, of pain, you know, it's like when if one of the central teachings of Buddhism is that life is suffering, I don't think that that's, you know, an admission that suffering is something to be incentivized or that we should maintain a position of unnecessary suffering when we have the technical capacity to end it. But it's to say that we learn through collision. The essence of evolution is mutation and fuckery and adversity. And I think that the, 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 the thing that, is there's a kind of almost privilege really and i don't mean this in a in a detrimental way i mean like a true gift for people who have lived extraordinarily difficult lives there's two ways that you can look at that you can say oh i didn't have that advantage and i'm not rich and i didn't have the leg up in life to become you know 
XYZ to have the penthouse, to have all that. It was never easy for me, you know, but we know, as you know, those people aren't happy. They're spiritually dead and to be spiritually dead and materially poor, you know, the happiest times of my life were the easiest. You know, I try to make whatever moment I'm in to be the happiest moment of my life. I don't often succeed, but the m most contented I've ever been was having nothing, truly. You know, but having a pair of shoes and a couple changes of clothes and a backpack and nothing else and being completely dependent on other people around me and being in this fluid relationship with the world, changing around me, having no will, sticking my thumb out and someone would pick me up and take me where I was meant to be. So the idea that there is a self-organizing anarchic principle in reality that is beneficent, that is loving, is not that hard to understand. It's also when you go through suffering that you have no fucking control over and you want to take your own life and you want to do harm and you're filled with anger and rage and suffering and pain and it seems so pointless, you know, and all you can do is keep living. That is the ultimate preparedness for the mindfulness of some little shit comes up in your head and you're like, you know, oh, I have a dentist appointment or oh, so-and-so doesn't like me or oh, I don't have enough, you know. That stuff's very small and easy to eradicate, easy to integrate and, and dissolve into the substrate of, of, you know, a deeper kind of being. And when without going through those kinds of experiences, I think it's very hard for people to make sense of the world. It's very hard for people to have any kind of wisdom or any kind of deeper insight when they haven't been busted out and tenderized like that by their life. And so I just uh, have to give gratitude to those stories. I, as a filmmaker, I seek those stories, you know, because that's where wisdom is. Even hearing those stories can help people see their own story and recontextualize their own suffering and their own hardship and see, no, there's a, there's a path here. There is clearly a path. This is not a random occurrence. These things don't happen randomly. And, you know, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no that, that's it. You yeah. know, I, I just, I just had a, a moment of uh, anxiety and then a moment of peace, you know, because there's not really anything else to say that truly the, thing we're all trying to do, the thing that our economy needs to do is to just stop all the wheels, to stop all this desire, to stop all this, you know, inflated demand for consumption and activity and employment. And we need to stop the wheels and learn how to just be and let things correct themselves and allow for that, you know, anarchic voluntary, free-flowing, self-organizing flow of reality, of human beings, of our own minds that are so troubled and stressed out to fix themselves. That if we just still and settle the mind and the economy, the structure, the social system, you know, we will harmonize ourselves to something deeper, to that self that is not me, but is all of us, all of us together. Yeah. And that, that, you know, that getting off of the wheel is, is so important. You know, the, the concept of voluntary poverty, you know, if, if, if we're going to, if we're going to save the world, that's going to have to be how we do it. People are going to have to 
begin measuring their successes, not by what they have, but on by the people that they are, right? There's no way to bring the rest of the world to the American standard of living with the resources that we consume so out of proportion to our population, right? We can't have the whole world meet the American standard of living, the, the world would be destroyed. We're taking far more than our share, right? And so, so what that means is that we have to find a way to find contentment, to find um, a, a sense of accomplishment or purpose outside of material acquisition, you know? Um, and, and the good news is, is that all the fucking data shows us that that shit doesn't make us happy. And we know, if we're honest with ourselves, that having two cars and, you know, more food than you can eat and you know all this junk you know all this you know uh you know artificially induced desire to go and buy all the time makes us perpetually anxious we can never be satisfied because the game of capitalism has no end there is no end point and not in a positive life goes on flowing endlessly kind of way there is no end point so we always need to have something we cannot be satisfied or GDP will contract and our economy will fall apart, you know? It, but it, it, the, the beauty, though, is that when we let those things go and realize like, oh, wait a minute, relationships make me happy. Nature makes me happy. Having a beautiful environment that I live in with people that I like makes me happy. It's not the things that I need. And on the other side of that, when we let that go and we get into this more of this ownership of this is mine, 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 and into an access-based sharing sort of system where we, we use what we need when we need it, we produce enough so that people can, you know, have what they need, we can live at an even higher standard than we are today, truly in an actual metric that matters, not a metric like GDP, which is a metric of, of dissatisfaction, literally, of yeah. problems. Yeah, and, and you it's win-win. <laughs> today, you know, I have far less materially than I've ever had before. You know, I have my I have a room at my sibling's house that I share with them, which is uh, awesome. Um, but I have my my clothing. I've got a bunch of books. I've got an old car that I was graciously given by my family from that you know had been sitting in my aunt's parking lot with the windows down for two years before you know my uncle fixed it up a bit and gave it to me to help me when I you know get on my feet when I got out of prison and stuff. So I have very very few things, and and yet in many orders of magnitude happier than I've ever been many orders of magnitude happier. You know, I, I don't have anything and I don't need anything, you know, so I've got it all already. You know, I, I guess I also want to kind of draw together the threads of like, you know, my start in anarchism driven by anger and stuff. And like where I began bringing the spirituality back together with anarchism more recently was like, you know, so, so I got like deep into spirituality while I was incarcerated and obviously continue to center in my life. Um, but the, the more I looked at it, the closer I looked, the more it began coming full circle with anarchism. And I began seeing within it, you know, blueprints towards an anarchist society. And so, so, so now I'm just as deep into the political stuff, if not farther you know than i was when i was younger but without all that anger coming from an attitude of acceptance and yet the necessity of change right it's one of the central paradoxes of the spiritual life that everything is absolutely perfect the way that it is and it is every one of our responsibilities to work to improve upon it right it's perfect on the one hand 
and there's so much work to do on the other hand, right? It's two different levels of understanding reality, right? On the, on the divine, on the spiritual level and on the conventional level, right? But so using spiritual practice to bring that sense of perfection into the imperfection so that there isn't anger, there's just awe at the immensity of the suffering and, 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 and gratitude to be in a position to be able to do something about it. You know, it's, it's, it's been difficult lately, especially around, you know, around Roe versus Wade getting overturned and, and um, just seeing tens of billions of dollars go to Ukraine when there's, you know, people starving here, people in need of, of you know, medical treatment, all, all kinds of stuff. Like at, at one point it started feeling pretty heavy and, and, and suffocating, but I was able to use my practices to get out from under that and, and, and release that, you know? And so, so, you know, now I could stay kind of deep in the muck uh, on all of just the, the crushing, the relentless flow of, of abhorrent news and, and awful information coming in and yet still keep, you know, keep your heart open in hell, you know, and, and still being able to kind of let it in and, and find, how I could be useful, find, find what my place is in, in this whole mess of existence. Right. And, and, and approach my work as, as service to the divine service to the, to the divine plan. You know, it's a, it's a very different approach to the one that I had started out with, but this is the one that's actually sustainable. You know, the other way almost killed me. You know, so so it's just kind of another, you know, a, a footnote to that point about using anger to drive change. You know, anger serves a good signaling function. It lets you know that change is needed, but after that, it kind of outlasts its usefulness. Then there's kind of a different approach that's needed to then drive change in a sustainable kind of manner. It's an inefficient fuel source. Mm. It's like uh, it's like fossil fuel. You know, it's the fossil fire of our of our uh, drive for change. And volatile, it, it inefficient, and volatile. <laughs> Yeah, it's and it pollutes it pollutes you and others as well, and it continues the cycles going. You know, and the means cannot be disentangled from the ends of of our thought processes, not just from some you know hypothetical revolutionary process. And so, yeah, in in making sense of the world, I there's a beautiful passage I think about very often in, in the Gita where Krishna talks about if you can interpret pleasure and pain as one and the same, you got it basically. You know. And I think about that when things get bad, when I read truly apocalyptic news of ice, ice caps melting and feedback loops intensifying and ocean acidification and microplastic in our blood and, you know, all of these problems that seem to not have solutions, you know, perhaps. I think they technically do have solutions, but the, then there's the reality of apathy around them. But I, I, I find a sense of rejuvenating, regenerating motivation and excitement even in the bad news getting worse because I see it's, I'm detached enough from it to see this is a system process. This isn't an issue. This is a very predictable output of the system as it stands. It will be this way until we change the system and we can change our minds and meditate all we want on individual levels Nothing's going to fucking change that. We could get every, we could dose every CEO with a hundred hits of acid and plug them into a program of mindfulness. They could be really nice, but the system itself has to output this level of destruction. So being detached from it is very liberating and it allows you to 
as you said earlier, which is a very important point, a very perfect choice of words, to be technical and surgical in the way that we think about solutions. Because the solution to our problem is not to do a bigger violence better, you know, which we will win for some reason because we are righteous and on the good side of history. Fuck that. We are not going to stand up to the trained, armed, mechanized killing machine of the United States empire, the greatest war dog that's ever lived, you know, with, with tr tr probably a trillion dollars worth of, you know, kill toys at their disposal because, you know, we're on the right side of history and our hearts are pure. That's not how re a revolution is going to happen. We have to think technically. We have to think, you know, in very different ways. We have to detach ourselves from that reactionary program of thinking that the that the solution to the problem is to localize the source of the problem in ourselves and just do it against the thing. You know, <laughs> it just seems so silly to me that we need to be emergent in our thinking and we need to evolve new ways and new methods and new systems and organize ourselves. Figure out how to do, as you said, to break ourselves out of that. You know that gnawing need for acquisitiveness and accumulation and collectivize to bring ourselves together into a program and a platform of constructing community of meeting each other's needs of helping pull each other up through this we're not going to do it alone you know but we can we can bring ourselves together and share all that we have and there's going to be some making do with less and there's going to be you know abundance beyond our wildest dreams in terms of community and social connection and purpose and love and satisfaction on a far deeper level than any of the things we could give up but we can we can do this and we have to and it it must be for lack of a better word there is no better word a loving platform we have to heal we have to create loving systems that are able to meet people's needs where the system fails them or we're never going to break through we're never going to have some political platform. Anger is not going to motivate us to build up an army to take down the global death machine. We have to create loving systems that meet our needs to build up something to show people, look, this is what they're against. You know, To build up something beautiful that says, look, we're meeting our needs efficiently, cleanly, effectively. Everyone is happy. We're working together. We're, it's voluntary. You know, We don't have bosses and leaders and people stealing our lives from us. We don't have anyone telling us what to do. We are free. We love each other. We take care of each other. We're happy and healthy. And then if the system wants to go against that and we say, look, I mean, that's, that's the power of turning the other cheek is that you show your enemy to be a monster. You sh and they see themselves in some instances, although highly doubtful. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's my platform. That's the constructive program that is needed. And it is by and large a nonviolent process of taking ourselves out of the existing thing, unplugging, stopping the wheels, and starting a new process, starting a new program, taking steps in a different direction. Sorry, yeah. it's kind of a long tangent. No, that that was great. And 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 there's so much resonance in there from, you know, with like um the approach of like radical Christianity, Christian anarchism, which I'm I'm hugely, um, hugely into. Um, but you know, you, you, Jesus gave a, a blueprint for how to do this. And you do it through love of neighbor, love of enemy, forgiveness, non-judgment, um, non-violence, you know, he said, if you want to know what we're about, come and see how we live, right? Living, living the kingdom of God on earth, right? Right here and now, uh, living that way that in that kind of, um, you know, uh, elevated mentality. And, and, and so, yeah, you, you, you really said it, you know, that, that, that well articulates why I'm, 
99% pacifistic. You know, I, I think that there should be a threat of defensive violence in a last resort situation. You know, if, 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 you know, proud boys show up at drag story hour and begin to throw punches, I don't think you should just stand there and get socked in the face. Um, I, I think that, you know, people, people should be defended against imminent violence, potentially with violence if necessary. But other than that, that's not the way that we're going to get where we want to go. You know, um, that the defensive violence has to provide the, the protection necessary for a movement of love to be able to flourish. And so it becomes very much a, a backseat part of the process and hopefully a completely um, unused part of the process, you know, but the, the way to really go about it, right, is to, to live in a way that is appealing to other people where they see the value in it. You know, I, I can't understand how we could have, you know, an anarchist society through force, through violence, right? Because then then you need the state, then we're getting into Marxist territory. And then we have all the problems that arise from having a state. <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, we, we have to be living examples of the teachings. Um, and we have to be holding space where people can defect to our side. And, and, and also, you know, uh, part of why I'm really into you know, Christian anarchism, kind of radical leftist Christianity is because you know, th this is an ideological battleground. You know, a, a huge portion of the people who we see ourselves fighting against are serious Christians. They don't understand things the way that Jesus taught them, in, in my opinion. You know, they have a Christianity that's been, once again, perverted by capitalism, neoliberalism, patriotism. You have, you know, the fetishization of money and of America as the, the new golden calf, you know, um, and, and people who have, you know, used Christianity to justify their pre-existing conservatism and reactionaryism, um, you know, it, just taking the teachings out of context. But if, if you can't speak those people's language, right, it's, it's going to be a non-starter to just tell them, now you got to get rid of your whole faith. You know, these people are living by it. They're doing it you, incorrectly, but, but they're living by it. So you got to be able to talk that language and, and, and fight on that battleground. You keep taking the words right out of my mouth. I keep wanting to chime in and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to speak in their language, you know, and you keep saying it, it's great. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that, you know, coming down to on people for their beliefs is just always a non-starter. And you, you, that principle of non-resistance that, I, I, that Jacques Fresco, I think, really epitomized in all his communication, the great Jacques Fresco was, you know, he was invited to the Ku Klux Klan in his small town while he was designing this utopian, you know, future blueprint. And, uh, they asked him after afterwards, like, because he, he they just said come to our meeting. He didn't know what it was, and they're like, "What did you What did you think, Jacques?" And he goes, "Well, it's a good idea. It just doesn't go far enough." And so, you know, then they're not turned off. They're, he's not like, "Yeah, you're all idiots. You're all racist and wrong." They were like, "Oh, okay." It becomes an invitation to say, you know, like say you have someone who is Christian instead of saying, "Hey, you're." Your godless, your superstition is wrong, and it's all an imperial fetish. Is that you know they're not gonna fucking talk to you. But if you come and you say, yeah, exactly, come and come and see how we live, you know. Or if you would invite them, you say, hey, would you like to embody the teachings of Christ more in your life? You know, would you like to really live this? Would you like to establish this, you know, new kingdom here, here and now? I mean, I think there is a tremendous power in being able to reclaim and that's all the whole point of liberation theology is the power to reclaim you know what was a weapon what was used to pacify 
you know, and use it to create revolution. Yeah. And, and um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, Paul said, you know, our, our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the principalities, the forces of darkness in the world. Um, systems. And against the systems, exactly. And so so what that means is like the, the true quote unquote devil, right? The true satanic powers are these systems, the systems of capitalism, the systems of, you know, of, of oppression, of exploitation. And, and very often the people who we see as our enemies are equally victimized by these systems, right? You, these people are, are in this, are in different kinds of prisons, but they're in prisons nonetheless. Right. And so, um, yeah, the, the, the struggle is against the system, not against the human being. And, you know, if, if people are serious that racism is ignorance, right, then the antidote isn't a bullet in the head. It's wisdom, right? How can you, say someone doesn't deserve to live because they grew up in X, Y, and Z environment with racist dad dropping N-bombs their whole childhood, right? And, and being taught, this is why you don't have a job. This is why your family's poor, right? That, that's not their fault. Those are, those are social, you know, social situations. And so it's, it's too simple to say, just put a bullet in their head, right? If, if we want to be treated like humans, we have to recognize humanity, right? And so the approach to ignorance then is, is wisdom is, is not, you know, violence. Yeah. Jacques was able to completely dismantle that chapter of the Ku Klux Klan within a month of showing them experiments and working with them and just treating them like human beings. And that really speaks to, um, what, um, the great James Gilligan, who we had on our show earlier this year talked about, um, in the prisons. I mean, he and his team would go to the most violent prisons in the, in the country and they would work with people and they would get the violence rate down to nothing just by treating people like human beings. And so all these people, these, these horrible examples of these degraded, backwards, you know, violent individuals that can never be compromised with or can never be worked with or will never come around. I think that's all bullshit. And I think a lot about a, a really powerful quote that um, Caitlin Johnstone said basically, and she's repeated it a few times, is that it seems impossible to change the world if you've never been through substantial change yourself. And I think I look at myself and the trans the transformation, the real transformation that I was once a fucking alcoholic addict, you know, a thief, a taker, you know, an, an ignorant and insecure and and negative, dark person with no hope or life. And I see I see the person that I am today through all these steps and transformations and changes. And I see that okay, if if I can change. If you can change, if you can go from being a, you know, uh, I, I actually find um, the, uh, the corporate route much more offensive than the meth dealing. But most people would say, <laughs> wow, you went from a meth dealer to, <laughs> to, a, sure. to a, you know, a counselor who's helping, pe who's helping prisoners. And the, you know, I just, I think it, it really just powerfully epitomizes that any of us can change. Of course we can change. We have to change, but we can. And that, that there's a beautiful opportunity in there. Yeah, and, and I think we're kind of running up on our time here, but um, if you want to kind of bring us on home here and uh, clo clo bring us bring us out of this perpetual cycle of suffering <laughs> and end the wheel of samsara. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just I just wanted to add that, you know, you, you can't stop the cycle of violence through more violence. You know, every side thinks that their violence is justified. And so, you know, anyone on the left that thinks that we're going to have a successful violent revolution in the United States is sorely mistaken. There's far more people on the right. They're far better armed and trained. Our entire military- 1776 right. will commence again! Yeah, our, 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 <laughs> most of them are coming out of the military. They're, um, 
you know, if there was a leftist revolution, the right wing militias would partner with the federal government, most likely to crush it. Like, that's just not the way that it's going to happen. It's not. Um, and, 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 but there are ways that are proven to work, right? And those ways involve, involve dialogue and, and us first coming to their side to understand them before we could bring them over to our side, right? That's what, that's what actually shows um, helps get these people's minds to change. Um, so yeah, just, just to say in conclusion, um, yeah, and I, I'd encourage anyone that wants to, to reach out to me on Instagram. Uh, I love to chat about this stuff. Um, would suggest that if you follow my main to follow my backup too, because my main is on its last community guidelines violation. So it won't be on, uh, it won't be there for too much longer. So anarcho spirituality is the main anarcho spirituality too is the backup currently. Um, and also, I maintain a a public Google Drive with resources for people who want to learn more about these ideas. Um, there's like 600 books on it now. And so if anyone wants to reach out and wants to be pointed in the direction of learning more about um, Buddhist practice or radical Christianity or, you know, Christian contemplative practice or Hinduism, yoga, Judaism, it's Taoism, it's, it's all on there. There's hundreds of books. And so um, I'm, I'm happy to provide recommendations and to, there's also a subfolder called Anarcho-Spirituality and Social Critique um, that includes the book I was quoting earlier, uh, Mick Mindfulness, and a variety of other, you know, books critiquing um, spirituality in America, and also um, offering social critique through spiritual lenses and talking about the revolutionary potential of spirituality. So yeah, so all, all of this stuff, you know, one of the things that I, I try to do is, is um, you know, be a resource for, for people and to have stuff that I could provide for people that want to learn more. So I would encourage anyone out there whose thinking has been stimulated by this conversation, um, please feel free to reach out. Yeah, your page is one of my favorites. You make me laugh all the time and you actually uh, dose, you know, little little bits of, of actually tangible insight and, and changes that we can make. And I think that's a very powerful thing. I would love to... Um, you know, try to get some kind of um, online support group or, you know, meditation circle or teaching group or something like that started to um, bring more of these ideas into this activist radical community because it's just so needed. It really is so needed more than like, you know, oh, you need to read X book or you need to continue reading this, this, this. I think that a lot of the people that we would find antagonistic, especially towards the idea of an anarchist society or a utopian society, whatever they want to call it. Um, I think that actually learning how to forgive yourself and learning how to get out of your own sort of victim victimization trap and get out of the anger and be able to see things in, in a non-reactive way. I think that that is going to make a lot of these beliefs, which just seem so radical to people that we could live, you know, without being controlled and that we could live, you know, in a voluntary society and that people can change and that, you know, we can get people to stop burning fossil fuels and all this stuff and stop over consuming and killing the planet on purpose for money, something that doesn't exist. That's <laughs> the religion that needs to go, you know, yeah. that's the spiritual woo woo fucking belief that we need to smash. Yeah. I just, I just really love what your story and your um, sharing and just the wisdom, the real wisdom that you have. And uh, I, I'm sure this will be, you know, the first of uh, many, uh, discussions and collaborations and ways that we can find to uh to break out of this this cycle you know because yeah. i i still struggle as i'm sure you do too it's a perpetual process it's like the waves never cease you know they never stop crashing onto this onto the sand 
you know, we, we will always be struggled, struggling with desire and, and, you know, want and, you know, anger. And, and these are things we always need to work on perpetually, but we, we, we get better and we get closer to something deeper inside of us. That is all of us. Yeah. And uh, on that idea of like, you know, support groups and stuff. So my, my plan is, so I'm doing my master's thesis on, you know, on, on revolutionary Buddhism essentially. And, um, my doctoral dissertation I plan to do on the Buddhist meditative path. I'm going to be going to um, Myanmar to a meditation monastery for a year or two just to sit and meditate and try and do damn near the whole path and probably writing a book on it afterwards. But the, the goal then is to kind of bring the two areas of interest together and hopefully, you know, become a full-time meditation teacher and run retreats for activists and stuff to actually give them the tools and how to cultivate their own emotional and spiritual resilience using some of these tools to bring them directly into their work. So that's kind of the, the long game. And so, so also feel free to reach out to me if you might potentially be interested in, in that kind of thing as it, as it comes together. You know, I, I hope to be teaching meditation on a donation basis full time um, as the Buddha intended it. You know, he said, you, you cannot charge for the, for the Dharma, you know, the teachings should be offered uh, for free and, compensated only out of the open-hearted generosity of the recipient of the teaching. So that's that's what I hope to get to, is to be able to teach this stuff full-time on a donation basis. That's commie bullshit. Come on, money's <laughs> just energy. It's just a tool. <laughs> it's just energy, you know? Like, you got to manifest abundance into your life. Like like Dr. Joe says, you get, you're going to manifest so much quantum abundance into your life. If you just like align yourself to the highest frequency of your greatest potentiality of wealth. The true abundance is in the heart, not the wallet. Special thanks to our patrons for believing in us and to all of our listeners for going on these journeys with us. And if you love what we're doing and really care, subscribe to our Patreon. If you really think that this shift is possible, or you just want to grow together and find community, please reach out and get involved with our organization. None of us is going to get there alone. We have to come together. No matter your beliefs, we're all in this together. Our environment and the web of life around us is pushing us by fire to recognize our interconnection. If we fight it, we'll fall. We have to learn to give up our attachments to all our past beliefs and self-identifications in our individualistic, acquisitive, and violent cycle. It's going to take collective awakening, and unfortunately a great deal of suffering for us to transcend the constructs of economy and nationality and ego and success and failure and good and evil, and the addictive craving and desire for more, 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 that keeps us competing in endless separation, at war with ourselves and life itself. The good news is, we can get there, and we can only get there together. You are not alone. You, as an individual separate entity, do not exist apart from the whole damn universe. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to stop spinning it in the ditch and come together, do the best we can, and create the best world possible without being attached to the outcome. <laughs>